friends. Welcome back to the show. Today it is my honor to be joined by my beloved friend, Dr. Joshua Graves. Hello. Every time you introduce someone on your pod, I think about you introducing Richard Rohr and just how much delight you can hear in his voice. Oh, Luke, so good to be with you. Yeah. Like, I mean, that just has to be an all-time epic human experience to have Richard Rohr take delight in hearing you say mm-hmm. his name. Yeah, what I would like for you to take from that is maybe you take more delight in me saying your name. Um, but there's one thing both of us will be taking a great deal of delight in. And you know what that is? Harbor. What's that? The 80th anniversary of the Pepperdine Bible Lecture is this year, May 2nd I'm through ready. 5th. Harbor, I'm ready. you are excited. I'm excited. What are, you, what are you doing out there this year, Josh? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Brother Luke. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to be talking about Richard Rohr. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, I Even if I was, I wouldn't admit it. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, the director, one of our friends, mentors, asked me to do a Wednesday session on a book that I've got coming out this month that you and I are about to talk about called yes. The Simple Secret. And then on Friday, I'm doing, I'm following Bob Goff. So I'm prepared for like half the room to leave. Like <laughs> Bob Goff, Josh Grace, who? Yeah. What? Yeah. So, huh? And I, I'm doing something on um, kind of judgment, eschatology, the love of God, how nice. it speaks to all of creation. Yeah. That's good. Well, the theme is God loves forever. So it makes sense. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, like you mentioned, Bob Goff's going to be there. Our friend Mallory, she's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Suzanne Stabile, she and I are doing a couple sessions together. And so I the- can't wait to see Suzanne. If she listens to this podcast, underscore if, if she Ouch. listens to this podcast, Suzanne. Ouch. I love you. It's been a while since I've seen your face. I can't wait to see you. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll let her know that. And uh, anyway, we will see her May 2nd through 5th. Harbor, hope I'll, all of my listeners can make it out there. Let me tell you one thing that I really love, Josh. Um, there is a new book that you've written, and I've done this podcast for a few years now. We've had a few episodes, Josh. You know, we're over 500 at this point. I believe this will be episode 541. And... Of those 541 podcasts, a lot of those have involved books. And of all the, let's just call it 450 books we've talked about, I think this book has one of the top five best titles of any book <laughs> that we've had. Top five. You had me. You had top me. I five. had no idea where you top were going. Five. First of all, 541, is that what you said? Yeah, this is 541. Yeah. You're the Ryan Rossillo of the uh, Christian oh, podcasting R- world. Rossillo just, just went hit, over 500. He just hit 500, and he's the. you're the reason I listen to Rossillo. Luke, you've shaped my life in all these ways that I don't acknowledge. No, and Rossillo also had a guy from Nashville on for his 500th episode, Nate Bargatze. I, I haven't listened to that part of it yet. I'm it's pretty behind. good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I think That's it's, awesome. I think Bargatze was better on Rossillo than on Annie's podcast. I feel like he was... You know, I feel like he was just trying to run over Annie. I feel like Rosillo kind of gave him some respect and like intimidated him a little bit, and so he was minding his manners, kind of like your MMA energy, a little like yeah, a lot of like that. Put That's you what in I headlock tr- right now. Exactly. Yes, I've got uh, jujitsu tournament medals over my shoulder. My listeners can't hear it, but I'm trying to flex on my friends. But let's not let's not uh, I don't know. Let's not miss the point. <laughs> what I'm saying is this is one of the top five best named books that we've had on. Can I tell that story? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So 
as listeners will know, sometimes when you hear Luke's inner circle, people fast forward because they're like, blah, 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 I don't care about this. But Luke is a dear <laughs> friend of mine. And all credit to Luke for the title because... Oh, really? Sh- I short version, Luke and I were on our annual family vacation together, which we've done for the last seven years, eight yeah. years, yeah. something like that. Good times, man. And um, I was just kind of pouring my heart out to Luke. Luke knew that I'd been in a writing slump uh, outside of kind of sermon stuff. And I just said, there's some things that I really care about and I think could connect to a certain kind of person who's looking for this kind of deeper experience of relationships and connection. And so as I'm explaining and narrating this, Luke just, in his very matter-of-fact, says, why don't you just call it the simple secret? And I was like... Come here, right here in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Your salty chest, my salty chest. <laughs> Let's hug this out. Yep, this is like a. And yeah. the title was born was. right there in the ocean. So, Luke, thank you for that. Yeah, if you're trying to come up with a visual for what happened there, if you're a Rocky fan, you remember the scene where Apollo Creed and Rocky are training on the beach and they're running. Which one? <laughs> and then eventually they embrace in the end and jump like that. Um, that was yeah. us. Uh, I'm you're obviously. Five. I'm I'm from Philadelphia, like Rocky, and so that was obviously me. Uh, you're Apollo for obvious reasons. You're taller, and uh, that's what happened. Yeah, that, but here is here's the paragraph which I feel like gets the heart of why I even suggested that title, or more importantly, why I was very excited about you working on this project. I mean, the names, you know, I'm, I'm glad to help with the name, but more importantly, like I think this book matters. And here's a paragraph which I think really sums up uh, one of the reasons why. There's only one thing that can transform the current chaos. There's only one thing in life that truly counts, and it seems to be a secret eluding most of us. Some of us get it late. Rarely do we comprehend the secret early. The simple secret is this. Love is the only legacy that matters. If I have any power or influence in my life, it is simply the ability to love people, obviously, each day of my life. Yeah, you know, just to be clear... Um, I was just recently talking with my wife about this. Books are are aspirational. Like part of the reason I did this book was a discipline because I, when I started it three years ago, I didn't feel like I was loving people as well as I could be or as deeply. I, I would probably have given myself a B minus in the love report card, and. So taking the discipline of Fridays, which was kind of my writing space, just because of the life stage that I'm in with my boys, um, I kind of set out on that journey to say, I I feel like I need to go deeper. And part of that was driven by COVID, where just so much was taken away from us in terms of normal, intimate uh, experiences, conversation, things that make us human, things that fill our soul. A lot of us were isolated and anxious and depressed and Deeply sad. <clears throat> Excuse me. So coming out of that, um, I just had this laser focus that that I re- and part of this is kind of what my dad has modeled for me. But as a three, I'm often driven by numbers and success and projects and checking off my to do list. But COVID was clarifying for me that my relationships are the only thing that are going to be with me those last few weeks, months of life when you get to the end. None of your trophies matter. None of mm-hmm. your accolades. It, it all. It's all. It's all temporary. And so that that's how I was approaching this. Yeah, uh, I, f- I feel like that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Everything I've spent my time writing has always been aspirational for me as well. 
um, I, my listeners probably heard me say this a million times, but I feel like the books that are born out of the crisis within the human heart are the ones that are most meaningful because they come from someone who's not just saying, hey, I'm really good at this, try to be like me, but someone who's saying, hey, I'm human just like everyone else, and right. I'm not pretending to have it all figured out. And this is like this process of the spirit and everything pulling this out of you. And so, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I, I think... I think we'd all like to say relationships matter, um, that how you love people is the only thing that really is significant. It's the only thing that you're going to remember on your deathbed, but we're not on our deathbed 99% of the time. And so we're at a different phase and at the deathbed, like you see what matters, but in the middle of life where you feel like you have forever to go, all of a sudden you don't feel like you have this time crunch. So you just get lost in what's right in front of you. And so I feel like that's so natural. Why do you, why do you think, uh, and assuming you agree that this is a struggle for most of us, wh- mm-hmm. why do you think it's mm-hmm. so easy for us to forget like the sort of insight you have in those moments that are like the deathbed moments or the moments of crisis or the moments of like clarity, but like the normal part of life? Why do we forget it so much? I just think we're inundated with so many responsibilities and and things that are pulling at us um, that it is really hard to stay rooted and grounded in that central truth that we were made for love and that we're, we'll, we're never most alive than when we feel loved and when we're loving someone else. Mm-hmm. I was uh, leading a conference uh, called Telemachus, just beautiful gathering of people every year, and we had Kurt Thompson uh, to speak. And Kurt, who's just just amazing psychologist, you've had him on the podcast. I honestly uh, never had Kurt Thompson on the you haven't had no, Kurt. I haven't. Oh, I feel I like you had him when he. I thought Soul of Shame. I thought you interviewed him. I, I oh, it was I, Ryan Rosillo. That's right. It was Ryan Rosillo. Ryan Rosillo okay. did. No, I've had his books come <laughs> in. I just never. I don't know why. Anyway. Okay. Anyways, Kurt Thompson, who some of your listeners will will know, he said this to me at lunch. He said, "Josh, all of us are born into the world looking for someone, looking for you. Oh, that's human connection." I've tried to get my friends who write in country music because this is Nashville. They have not taken me up on that. Um, but think about that. In all these moments of your life, of what we know with attachment theory and a, and a two-month-old and what we know about orphans around the world, like so much goes wrong in that early years for those kinds of person because they're literally looking for someone looking for them and their soul starts to communicate back to them, no one's looking for you. And when we get into these places of life where we feel alone and isolated and meaningless, we're just repeating the same day over and over again, it's because we don't feel seen. We don't feel connected. Those are all words that we're striving for that Thompson says in healthy ways. You can live your life fully alive to God with the love of Jesus when you are looking for someone looking for you because they're looking for the same thing. And when your boundaries are healthy, when your spirit's healthy, you have so much to offer that particular person because you're fully awake to your own life and what you might be able to give that person. I'm stuck on that quote. We're looking for someone looking for us. Yeah. I don't know how much more perfectly someone could construct a sentence that yeah. accurately describes the human condition in that. Yeah. We're looking for yeah, someone when, who's when, looking for us. When Thompson said it to me, he, it was like he slapped me in the face. Because, you know, to use Enneagram language as a three, that's why we threes gravitate towards achievement and success, because it's one degree over from human connection. 
human connection feels elusive. So we settle for this other thing that we hope will fill that void. But what we really want is not the trophy. We want the friendships in the locker room. It's not the championship, the accolades that we want. It's the memories of the road trips with our coach and our friends. That's actually what we're after for sevens. It's the same thing, that that anticipation is the degree next to what you actually want. What you actually want is the experience, but I know this about you, Luke. What you actually want is not the experience. You want the experience of experiencing it with somebody that you love. Yeah. Right? So that's that's the we come into the world looking for that. We just express it differently in our yep. own strategies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I take a few extra months to figure out what's really going on in my life. Uh, and then, I, like, I, like, in the moment, <laughs> I have... are not the most retrospective <laughs> but retrospective. It, no, I'm not the most... But give me a couple months. I'll get there. Like, I will get there. Absolutely. You, you give me enough long walks. I'll figure this stuff out. A year ago, the Monday after Easter, I finally went and got a new truck. And like I was, we've, I'm familiar with this truck. Yes. Yes. And you're familiar with the old one. You're like, yeah, it was time. It was time to go. <laughs> but as I remembered that, what stayed with me, uh, the best thing about my new truck is the moment when I got home and my daughters didn't know I was getting a new vehicle and they come outside mm. and they're all cheering for me. And I've thought about huh. that for a year, literally one calendar year, I've thought about that because like, it's nice to have a vehicle that has an air conditioner, that, that has the ability to honk, that passes inspections. Um, there's a few other things, but it's, it, those things are nice. Um, but having a moment that someone who deeply cares about you wants to celebrate yeah. with you, that's what I've yeah. held on to. And yeah. uh, it's, it, it's not the, the championship. It's the, the locker room experience with your friends like you're describing. That, mm-hmm. That's what that is. Like, I want the experience, not the accolades as much as the three. I want the experience, but I really want the experience with people who I love and care about. And I just, younger Luke didn't know how to explain that or didn't know actually what was yeah. underneath the surface that I was desiring. But that's love. I'm wanting love. Right. And that's why, you know, we need to be gracious with our sin and our failure because it's still in the direction of figuring out who you want to be. And when you sin long enough and you pay attention, you start to realize, oh, this is why I'm doing it. This is what I'm actually seeking. Yeah. yeah. Can you flesh out how we could see this natural impulse that is underneath the surface of our sin that could lead us to being more gracious towards ourselves and not getting into shame cycles? Yeah. So I think kind of, you know, in the context of love, the relationship in love and sin is is a delicate one, but um, I have I think about sin as any choice or action that I partake in that hurts someone else, mm-hmm. that betrays someone else. So for me, sin is inherently relational, just like love is inherently relational. It's always in the context of my community, my friends. Sin is about breaking that trust, disappointing someone. Um, so that's kind of my reading of, of Genesis 1 and 2. And, you know, so when I ask myself about my relationships, the ones that are going well, the ones that aren't going well, um, that that's where you have to really de- dig kind of deep and ask yourself, well, what's my motive in these relationships? Like, have I actually shown them that even though I'm prone to sin, which is choosing myself over them, have I actually shown them that I'm for them, that I'm thinking of them, that I'm willing to go the Jesus route, which his definition of love in the midst of sin is sacrificing for somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's um, it's not 
sometimes all the things we make it. It's just, am I willing to do something that is sacrificial, that shows that person I'm putting them over me? Even in the smallest of ways, people feel that when you choose them over yourself. Yeah. When I'm hearing you say love is for you, I'm I'm hearing the Scott McKnight definition for love, which you use in the book. Uh, For the listeners, you've probably heard us talk about this before, but um, love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be for someone, unto Christ-likeness for as long as it takes. Love. Let me read it again. Love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be for someone, unto Christ-likeness for as long as it takes. Why does that definition work so well for you? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge it's definitely Scott's, and I give him all credit for it several times in the book, probably too much, but... I have not found it in his writing. Hold on, you, only, you call him a renowned New Testament scholar. Like, you could have just gone New Testament scholar, but you added the word renowned. Interestingly enough, when you talk about me, um, the word renowned is never used. No, we're going to pause for a second. We're going to come back to old Scotty for one second. Um, when I gave you the title for the book, which Scott didn't give you jack crap for the book, if, if I recall correctly, um, I, this, the sentence after, you should call it a simple secret. That's me talking. Um, in your book, that's me talking that struck with me this is you talking i was surprised how much i liked it because the idea came from a guy who calls his popular po- well, at least he said popular i appreciate that his popular podcast newsworthy with norsworthy a little bit dated but still not exactly emmy award-winning usage of the english language yeah you'll be happy to know in the editing process the pdf that you're reading off of got updated we changed the word emmy for pulitzer Oh, well, that makes me feel so much yeah, better. It, it makes it a lot. <laughs> that makes me feel so much better. Thank you, Josh. Anyway, it makes a lot better. why don't you go back to kissing up to Scott McKnight, the renowned New Testament scholar? Yeah. Well, just because he responds to you differently on your pod than <laughs> you, don't let that Don't let that color the, uh, the quote. So I haven't been able to find it. <laughs> oh, Luke. Um, I haven't been able to find Scott's definition in writing. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But let's be honest. He writes so many books. How can you read them all? It's not anywhere? But, you... No, here, here's where I heard him say it. He was in Nashville and had convened a, a group of pastors and was talking about um, how churches can be these communities of love, kind of in the Pauline spirit yeah. of the word love. And he asked every pastor at the table what's your definition of love? And I was like right back in grad school, like, oh man, I don't want to give a bad answer. You know, when the teacher's like everyone had. And so everyone kind of went around the room and we stumbled and we bumbled. And obviously he'd been thinking about this for a year. And he said, and I'm not going to do his voice, but he said in his Scott McKnight, you know, like Chicago Bears football Mm -hmm. coach voice, love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be for someone, unto Christ likeness for as long as it takes. And I was like, that's not only the most Jesus-like definition, it's also super compelling to like an atheist and an agnostic. Yeah. You know, they might quibble over the Christ-like part of it. but So I've, I've gravitated towards that, and it's become a mantra. Like when I'm on my way home and I'm stressed about something that's going to happen that night or I'm entering into a hard conversation or someone's mad at me because I've taken a position on a justice issue in a sermon that they don't agree. Like that has become a breathing mantra. Love is a messy or rugged commitment to be an advocate, like present with someone to be for someone, an advocate. Jesus is the standard. And this is going to take a while. 
And it just, like those mantras over time in your marriage, your relationship to your kids, like the people you work with on a daily basis, like it is a liberating thing to say, this is actually what love requires. Mm -hmm. This is what it is right here. So I applied that then in the book Mm -hmm. to how Jesus looks at all these different characters in the human experience, God, other humans, how he and and St. Paul think about marriage and children and enemies and the vulnerable, the poor, the strangers, all of these different kind of characters that will be part of your narrative and, and the different narratives you'll be part of. How could you apply this love ethic of a rugged commitment to all these different people who are part of your life? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really like meditations on how to love all these kind of unique people. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, when he said unique people, I thought we we're going to have like a list of a few people that we both know that are hard to love. Um, mm. But uh, we don't need to bring up Jonathan Storman right now. Uh, you do talk about. He's like the Newman in your Seinfeld characters. <laughs> He's like sure. Newman. He's not. He was on the podcast recently and he said the following line, which I've heard from multiple people, where Jonathan was trying to connect uh, his experience with the Johnny Cash experience with Arkansas. And he said, We've been spanked by the same people. And I was like, Why? Why would you even talk like, like that sentence didn't need to be said? I don't know. There's so many questions. Yeah, anyway, I'm, but yes. I'm not sure what that means. Stormin is always hovering around. Nevertheless, you have a chapter on uh, specific people to love, which is probably easy for, for you and I, uh, which is parenthood. But you mm. frame that chapter in the idea of the idolatry of parenthood. And mm. what I love is your description of your three kids, which... Mm-hmm. Like it's spot on. Like, I mean, they're obviously your kids, but like they're mm-hmm. definitely, you describe them in a way they go, that's exactly how I think about them because your, your kids are like dear friends of ours. And I, okay, don't tell Avery. Okay. Just listeners, please don't tell her. But I was snooping through her text. I was parenting her through viewing her text parent messages. Corner. Yeah. Parent corner right here. And she meant she was texting someone about how we got together a couple of weeks ago when you guys were in Austin and she was like, Oh, we're, we're going to get together tonight with our good friends from Nashville. And I was like, mm. Oh, our good friends. Mm. That's so sweet. And, uh, and she goes, yeah, we vacation with them every year. They're our good friends. Mm. And I was like, Oh, that's adorable. That is like the best thing that's been spoken today. Yeah. I'm so glad you confessed your, uh, Crossing boundaries with your daughter's text messages to. to I, share I don't with feel like I'm mother. crossing boundaries. I feel like that's part of parenting. I, do you? It is really no. I do read. Oh man, Whew, I was reading some last. <laughs> I need to run it through the filter. To yeah, but we're gonna yeah. stop this conversation yeah. before we. Yeah. We can make fun of Jonathan, but we uh, we'll keep our, our kids stuff uh, for after the yeah. microphone is is off. Um, you you jump in parenthood, but then you you jump to mm-hmm. the. Uh, what is the Hebrew word for uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac? Um, the Akeda. Yeah, I can't say that yeah. word. But you have like an awful story, and you didn't caveat it at all. Like you just talk about it as like this is a test for a guy who wanted to have kids, and this is like a child. This is the big deal. This is the biggest test for him. Uh, did you not feel like you had to say? I know some people were struggled by this. Like you, you just like jumped right into the text and didn't do the typical. Yeah. So that's a really good question. A couple of things. First of all, it is the text of the Old Testament for Jews, especially in a post-Holocaust world. I mean, Genesis 22 is one of the seminal texts that all Jews 
in their training have to wrestle with, especially in the rabbinic training. Um, so my introduction to can, Genesis, hold on, can I interrupt? Why would you, yeah, for a non-Jewish uh, person to hear that? I don't know if they could connect the dots as to why that is a central text. Could you elaborate? Uh, the the suffering and violence that seems to be instigated by God Himself um, to an innocent father, a seemingly innocent father, and a definite innocent teenage Isaac. Like, yeah. it it calls into question the entire nature, goodness, character of God. Um. Yeah, so then after the Holocaust and and the profound experience of six million people dying, um, where was God and all that? The character of God is on trial again. So the Genesis 2 emerges again as like one of the seminal, besides the Exodus and the giving of Torah, like those are the three, mm-hmm. as I understand it, the three defining texts in the Torah. So... Um, there's definitely different ways to talk about Genesis 22. In other settings, I would talk about Genesis 22, meaning you can't read Genesis 22 from a 21st century perspective back into it. Yeah. You have to read it from within that context, which is those men and women were very comfortable with what the gods would require of them, right? So if you read the Enuma Elish or the Gilgamesh of Epic, for instance, the gods are always asking humans to do crazy things. Part of what's going on in that story is Abraham saying to God, you're not the gods like we read about in the Akkadian civilization. You're not the gods that we read about in the Assyrian narratives. You're not a God who requires a blood sacrifice. This is actually not who you are. And by the way, where Abraham was from, Ur of the Chaldees, that kind of stuff was going on. There's a UNICEF monument dedicated in that part of the world to this day where they where they think Ur, which was the New York City of its day, was located. So Abraham is essentially um, kind of reverting back to testing God. So there's a dual testing where God's like, will you do this? And Abraham's like, but this isn't who you are. The reason I'm following is you're not like the gods of where I used to live. And so there's this playful, very Jewish, makes Protestants uncomfortable exchange between the two. But my my true introduction to that story as it relates to being a father is this great book by Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor mm-hmm. and Jew- Jewish mystic. He has a chapter on the Akedah that I've read 25 times and I still am not sure I understand what he was saying, but it's so beautiful and so powerful. And then you sprinkle in a little Tim Keller, which is kind of who I summarize in that chapter, which is to say Abraham had gotten to a point where it seems like he cared more about his son than he did God and that his son had become idolatrous. And before I became a father, I would have scoffed at that kind of interpretation. But once you become a father, let's be honest, you spend so much of your time thinking about your kids. How can they flourish? How can I carve their path? I want them to go to a good school and stay healthy and avoid accidents and mistakes and tragedy. And we become obsessed with like our responsibility. And I, and part of what God is doing in the Genesis 22 narrative is he's messing with Abraham to say, there was a time you used to care about me more than you did other humans. And now you're so obsessed with Isaac. You're so fixated on him. I'm going to test you in that. And then again, that's where Abraham is kind of pushing back to say, but that's not the kind of God that you are. Fine, mm-hmm. I'll go up the mountain. I'll play your game. I do not think Abraham ever thought he was actually going to kill his son. Now, this gets deep in the weeds of interpretation, and some people would have a problem with that. But I think God the whole or Abraham the whole time was like, 
I know you're. I know this isn't who you are. So how is this going to play out? Yeah, I think you're spot on with the idolatrous relationship that we can have with our kids, in that they become the centerpiece of our existence. That like everything ebbs and flows around them. And if something was to happen to them, it would feel like my life fell apart and I wouldn't have a core anymore. Like I would feel like I'm losing my soul to use more traditional religious language if my kids weren't there because they, that's, that's how they function. And so to use that language of, uh, idolatry is pretty spot on, but also to have an idolatrous relationship with your kids means that you are asking for them to be something to you that's not fair for them to be. Like, there's no way that's right. you should expect a kid to satiate the needs that you would look to for your deity. Like, God can do things that our kids can't do, and it's not fair to expect them to be in that position. Yet, we, we find ourselves there. And you tell a story about a guy um, who's Ryan Rosillo's friend, which keep referencing him is what I think mm-hmm. we should do every 10 minutes on the podcast. Uh, Trent Dilfer, who uh, Nashville guy now, no longer Nashville uh, moved to Birmingham. Is that right? Yeah. But he was the high school football coach at uh, Lipscomb Academy. Is that right? Um, yeah. He was uh, before that he was an NFL quarterback, Super Bowl winner for the, uh, the Seahawks. I actually had a buddy who went to uh, play, uh, played at ACU and then went and was uh, on the practice squad for uh, Seattle. When, he won a Super Bowl for the Ravens, moves to Seattle, and then my buddy is right. playing for Seattle, meets him, and he tells me the first time he met Trent Dilfer, this is 15 years ago, that the first <laughs> thing Trent Dilfer said to him was, yeah, I'm a Super Bowl winning quarterback, but the most important thing about me is I'm a Christian. Wow. Yeah. He told that to a guy named James Hill, uh, an ACU grad from 20 years ago. Nevertheless, so you tell the story about Trent having to go through an awful tragedy that he and his wife and his three daughters endured, which was the loss of Trent's five-year-old son. And he has this line in this interview that you guys did. Uh, was it at Otter Creek, the interview at church? Yeah, right? he did a sermon testimony. Yeah. So here's the line. I had to decide if my son was better off with God or me. And I decided that Trevin, my son, was better off with his creator. Now, this is your uh, editorialization here. Of course, Trent wasn't suggesting that God caused Tevin's, Trevin's, uh, Trevin's death. Trent was noting the radical demand of faith in such an unimaginable period of death and pain. So that idea of radical faith, that's what Abraham had to have. That's, in some ways, like the Mm -hmm. point of the story is that you have to have this Mm -hmm. radical faith, even as you can't hold on to your kids as tight as you want them to be held, right? Yeah, our kids don't belong to us. I I think that's how Dilfer has said it in other contexts. And I remember vividly the first interview we have multiple services so that was the first time i knew i didn't know how he was going to answer that part of the conversation but he also told a story about how several years later he was still grieving trevin's death and god broke his heart open and this is a almost six five like he is a giant human being you know like how some people are six five and it's like oh six five and then other people are 6'5", and it's like, he is a brick wall. Like, his hands, his shoulders, he's just a h- large human being. And so he's telling this story of his heart being broken, and just everyone is kind of leaning in their seats. And he talked about, he was with one of his daughters at a retreat for fathers and daughters, and they were singing this song, Let the King of My Heart. Um, and it just talks about God softens your heart, and he realized that he was still resentful towards God. And the, the the word that he got was, 
You think your kids are your possessions. They don't belong to you. They're a gift. Hmm. You don't own a gift. You steward a gift. And um, I think that that fine line in kind of affluent cultures, and maybe every culture, but but suburban middle class, upper middle class cultures, like, you know, because we kind of have these things we want for our kids and how we think they should turn out. That, that they really quickly, like for sons and fathers, you know, sons can be forced to live out the unfulfilled dreams of their father. Like it's the guy who got cut yeah. from his JV baseball team and he wants his kid to go to college. And so he's maniacal about practice and the kid wants to play piano, right? Like we all yeah. know that story. And to a degree, we all struggle with that with our kids in different ways. But Dilfer's point was simply, these humans are a gift. And you get to steward that gift in a unique way for 20 years, and then the next 20 years you you steward them as humans in a different way in their next season of life. And if you ever think that they that you possess them, life is going to humble you and it's going to break you of that idolatry. Yeah. yeah. So love, right? So love requires the question, am I stewarding them in the image of Jesus? Or am I stewarding them in the image of the person staring me back in the mirror? Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. I want to jump to another section of the book that I found really compelling and had to read it because uh, I feel like your words are going to be better than mine, so I can't sum it up. So uh, here's a paragraph uh, for my listeners. I apologize. Josh has a potty mouth, and um, you know we're just going to read the text as it comes to me. I don't know how the American church will survive celebrity pastor addiction preachers and sneakers. I don't know if non-believing Americans will ever forgive the white church for becoming so partisan, so racist, anti-science, anti-climate change, and so pro-Donald Trump. I honestly don't know if they should forgive us. I'm worried I'm helping to build a church that none of our children will find helpful or meaningful. And I'm still in my kitchen watching a 17-year-old handsome young man fall from a U.S. evacuation plane because he'd rather risk his life leaving his home than to stay one more day with the Taliban in power. I'm in my kitchen as I see a video replay of a desperate young mother handing her baby to a complete stranger in a United States Marine uniform. I feel so damn helpless as I eat my breakfast in my beautiful suburban home in the perfect school district. What were you feeling when you wrote that? Just a, a desire to be vulnerable and authentic. That um, I think one of the curses of our current cultural moment is that we are aware of tragedy in a way that no generation before us has ever been aware of it. Meaning we know in real time tragedies that happen halfway across the world. 50 years ago, it took three days. 100 years ago, it took a week. 150 years ago, it took two weeks for people to find out. And we find out in real time when stuff is happening in Syria and Pakistan and Russia. And the weight of being exposed to all of that makes it really hard to be compassionate and loving. Because what we do when we feel overwhelmed is we just say, you know what? It's terrible and I choose to numb. Uh, Netflix, alcohol, porn. I'm just going to numb because I don't want to feel what I really know I'm supposed to feel. Um, so that, yeah, that that whole thing about vulnerability and all the suffering in the world is just to be honest that we, we're exposed to all this and we don't have the tools to, to know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. 
it was maybe a week and a half ago that you addressed, I think, Lipscomb's campus after the shooting in Nashville, which happened just a couple of blocks away from one of y'all's campuses. Yeah. Uh, how'd you find yourself having that conversation? So I mostly addressed uh, our church. One of our campuses is just a couple of miles from there. And I addressed the course that I teach at Lipscomb. And then um, I wrote this email that kind of Tuesday night, the shooting at Covenant School was on a Monday a few weeks ago. And then Tuesday night, I just had been repressing it. And I just probably unwisely just kind of put it all out there. I made sure our communication director approved it first because she usually has a really good sense. And somehow, I, I genuinely have no idea, and it's not super important, but the Wall Street Journal picked it up uh, and quoted me in this article that they had about gun reform and gun gun legislation. But my, my point in that whole piece was our prayers are noble, but they're not enough. Like if our Christian pro-life ethic, which is an ethic rooted in the love of God in Christ, if that pro-life ethic of love doesn't compel us to make some real tangible, actionable steps in every fabric of life, including the legislation, then our Christianity is a joke and people are laughing at us. Like we're just literally having religious theater. We're not actually participating in the improvement, the kingdom of God in the world. Um, so the, the, the shooting was awful. Uh, a, a young person who has all kinds of different things they're wrestling with walked into a covenant school, killed six people. Three of them were nine-year-olds, killed three nine-year-olds, including um, the daughter of the pastor of the church who's nine years old. And, you know, um, like you see in Uvalde or um, Sandy Hook, uh, when it comes to your neighborhood and your city, Nashville's still a small town in many ways, um, it just rips people open to the pain and the suffering of the world in a way that's it's so raw and it's so I don't even have a word for it. Hmm. Probably the only word is that Romans eight word of groaning, the the Sistanazzo word of communal groaning that we don't have an English word. We just have like the groaning of the human body to say. God, how could you allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. Hmm. You have this interesting observation about Judas and Peter, where you say, I can't prove, but I suspect that as Jesus came to learn about Judas' death by suicide, he became even more aware and passionate about mending the relationship with Peter. Even though Jesus was the one who had been wronged, he decided that love moves first. So we went to Peter to finally restore the valued relationship. Um, There's a line there, I I forget. Uh, So he moved to Peter under the guise of a breakfast um, to not merely forgive Peter, but to be fully reconciled, to finally uh, restore their valued friendship. Tell me about how you came to that observation, because that's fascinating. I've never heard that before. Yeah, um... So uh, just through different study of of the Gospels, I've become kind of a side habit, side project, intrigued by how the Judas and the Peter characters are talked about in Christianity, even in art and film. I mean, 
you know, others have noted this. We don't name our kids Judas, right? True. Uh, yep. We don't name our daughters Jezebel. Like, there's a reason why some of these names have been kind of yeah. removed from the larger um, bucket. So, when you, I think when you read the text closely, and you, you kind of have to take pieces from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but it's pretty clear that Judas is remorseful. There's some debate over what his motive might have been. Like, did he really betray Jesus in the sense of he finally was convinced Jesus wasn't the real thing? Or was he trying to inaugurate the kingdom of God because he really believed that Jesus was going to set up a military, you know, compound right there in Jerusalem? But he clearly is remorseful because I think it's in Matthew. He goes back to the religious leaders and tries to give the money back. And they're like, come on, like it's 30 pieces. We don't just get out of here. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's some tension in the text about how exactly did he kill himself? How did he take his own life? But, um, you know, we know from uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, the women of Luke 8, like Jesus had these intimate friendships with people. And so much about Jesus's life we don't know. Like we get four gospel accounts, but there's so much of his life we don't know. But we don't know hardly anything about from age 12 to 30, right? But we just get these snapshots of his public ministry, mostly from age 30 to 33-ish. But what's clear is he really invested in these friendships. As far as we know, he wasn't married. He didn't have any kids. So his friends became like his intensity, his, his place to express that desire for intimacy. And so Peter, much more so, but Judas to a lesser degree, they were part of his, his friend circle. And, of course, you can't prove this because of the nature of the Gospels, but Jesus shows so much interest in Peter. It's Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, which is influenced by Peter, according to church tradition. Luke is influenced by Paul. But it's Mark who says about Jesus, and Jesus said after his resurrection, go tell the disciples and Peter. I'm back. Meet me in Jerusalem. The Spirit's coming. It's like Jesus goes out of his way that he's not going to let Peter's worst moment define his entire life. Hmm. Now, Judas did. Judas chose the embarrassment, the shame. It's inferred in the text. It's not stated explicitly, but it's implicit that the shame of what he did drove him to end his own life. And I think in the resurrection, Jesus was about making all things new, reconciliation. And so he had one friend that on this side of heaven, to use religious language, he didn't have that opportunity to, but Peter was still there. And it's like he wanted to make sure by going to Peter in that famous John scene where he makes breakfast for John on the the shore of the beach, he makes sure that he wants Peter to know what he also wanted Judas to know, but didn't have the chance i'm not just forgiving you i'm reconciling with you Mm -hmm. i'm just not absolving you of your guilt i'm rebuilding our friendship and our friendship is going to be even stronger because of the betrayal that you enacted when you denied me three times Hmm. that's really good that's really good and think about it think like a lot of friendships that you have and that i have once there's real hurt and betrayal it presents this opportunity we can either dissipate in our friendship, or if we really work through this, we can be stronger. We can take on the strength of that which we overcome. You see it in marriages all the time. Sometimes you'll hear someone get up in church and give a testimony. And it's like, the affair that I had seven years ago is the best thing that ever happened to your marriage. And you're like, my marriage. And you're like, what? And it's like, the pain of that 
broke open something vulnerable in both people that then it allowed them to actually build on top of it. And so sometimes when you go through something horrible with somebody, especially betrayal, it become it creates the raw materials that reconciliation forges. It's like a when an eleven year old breaks a bone, oftentimes the bone comes back stronger than if yeah. they hadn't broken it. Yeah, that's really good. I I love the the idea of Jesus like being intentional and drawing a line and saying, all right, this is not going to happen to another one of my friends. Right. They both have failed me. I'm not going to let it be this way with Peter. Like he is going to forge away and make this work. And then, so you have, like you described like that, that bone that, that grew to be stronger because of the fracture that went through it. Uh, yeah, that, that's really brilliant. Um, you tell a story about, uh, a guy who on 9-11 was like a security guy in one of the towers and you're telling it and I'm going, I know, I know this story. And then you get to the party like, oh yeah. And, uh, we had preached that story around the same time. And it reminded me of something like, as I was reading through the book, it's like a lot of the best parts in the book have me involved in them. (laughs) And so there are a couple that I was wondering, why didn't you include me in? And so, here's a list. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait. Look, I found a list. <laughs> okay. First. If you're too intermeshed in my life. That's the problem. Like, it's I feel like, like I'm knot. not enmeshed. It's like, a, it's like a giant knot that has to be untied. It needs to be more meshed. I want more meshing. <laughs> a lot of double mesh shorts like they had in the old days. You tell a list of times that people got lost. You tell the story about your brother losing his kid at the water park. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it just feels me like you're telling that story and i just felt like this hot wave come out of my gut Mm. of two years ago our youngest daughter audrey got lost while we're at the beach oh i forgot about this yes and then last year it was Uh, your youngest that we're not very good with keeping our kids that's the moral of the story (laughs) um the good news is that we were not solely responsible our whole families were there (laughs) if it was just me that lost audrey bad day for me uh like Lindsay would have killed me but like for those five minutes, 10 minutes, it, it felt like it was seven hours, but yeah. she was gone for eight to 10 minutes. Uh, it, anyway, as you're telling that, I like, I'm going, Oh my gosh, I'm glad you didn't write that story. Cause it made me want to throw up thinking about it. Yeah. I, uh, if the Korean version of this book ever comes out, praise be to he, you know, if that ever happens, <laughs> then I might have to add those stories, but I will never forget. Honestly, I remember the Audrey story more than my own son, Oliver. If you're listening to this in 10 years, I'm sorry. But when Audrey went missing, I don't know if it's because the girl-boy thing. Yeah. And I don't have daughters, so I'm even more like tender to her. It's like the innocence of girls and the, sure. you know, the all of that. But And it felt like we couldn't find her longer than it took us to find Oliver. I don't know if that's true, but it felt it. But the four of us, our two wives and the two of us, like – for about six minutes, it was the worst possible feeling ever. Yeah. yeah. It uh, it was awful. And so as you're describing these lists, I'm going, okay, you could put me in there. I'm glad you didn't. Uh, another time, you... Uh, <laughs> and I'll just read uh, a selection. Flashback two years. I'm in New York City with Luke and two other friends for a three-day respite sa- slash celebration of life adventure, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm in bed right in my... Before ho- COVID. 
Yeah, that's actually where right we got COVID. COVID. We brought COVID from New York. Uh, we're <laughs> patient, patient zero in Tennessee and Texas. You said this. I'm in bed in my hotel room late one night across from Central Park. I'm able to sleep wrestling with big issues. And a truth came to me. It crashed into me, actually, like a comet. I turned the lamp on next to the bed and wrote down several notes. I stayed up most of the night. How come you didn't put that you woke me up? Because I was in the room, too. We like, were sleeping in the same bed yes, together. Like, in fact, you, I still have a photograph of you and I in these white robes that yes. my wife does not think is funny but we slept in the same bed in that hotel next to central park okay so remember me telling you the next day i was like i think i have no i remember you waking me up like i remember so my question is how come you didn't say i'm i'm in the room like you're not there by yourself like a comet hits you but i'm waking up too Apparently, you're like the spirit. Like, the spirit's just always there. You don't have to always name the spirit for okay. people to know. That you're helps. just there. You're fully present. That's it. Okay, that makes me feel better. That's what I'm looking for. That's the answer I needed. So, um, <laughs> that's perfect. All right. Josh, uh, the book, The Simple Secret. Uh, yes. Great title. When does it actually come out? When is the official release date? Uh, it is... I think like April 21st, the pre-order is available. Some people are actually getting their copies. It's always weird with publishers. Yeah, it is weird. I've had several friends who are starting to get it, but Amazon, uh, Cascade Publishers, their website, Amazon's probably the quickest, but yeah. All right, listeners, this is what I want you to do. Uh, Please go pre-order this book. And when you do leave a nice review, uh, those things make a big difference. Amazon reviews are huge. So would you please go do that for this book that Josh and I co-wrote together? And we would be really appreciative (laughs) of our first ever joint book (laughs) that we wrote together. I'm joking. The Simple Secret guys could get it. Congratulations, Josh, on, on a great book. Thank you. The only thing more important than you reading it is you buying it. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Right on, man.